1983, I began my first job in ministry as a youth pastor, and um, eventually kind of worked my way up in that church, and in 1988 was suddenly and without expectation fired. It was obviously a very public humiliation when that happens. Um, I decided at that point I never wanted to be in the ministry again. And so I took a job in post-secondary education in Indiana. So from California to Indiana. So we would call ourselves often uh, in cross-cultural ministry uh, when we were there in Indiana. Uh, because we had come from California. It's a very different place, but I had some very good years, but found myself really longing to be back in ministry. And in 1995, I read a book, the summer of 1995, I read a book by a former professor at Dallas Seminary named Jack Deere. It's called Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit. And on, as I recall, it was literally on the morning that I finished this book, um, one of my friends was driving past the seminary building uh, at the school where I worked, and I walked out the door, and Denny said, hey, Scott and I have planted a church, and we know you have a lot of connections in the music department here, which I did. I was working with one of the teams. He said, would you think about, we need to hire a worship pastor. Would you think about who you might suggest for that? And I did maybe what was one of the dumbest things I've ever done at the time, but turned out in hindsight to be something that radically shaped my life and my understanding of my Christian life as well. Um, I met with Denny the next morning. I said, Denny, I... I think I'll take that job. I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. I had studied music as an undergraduate, although I played the trumpet. I knew exactly three chords on the guitar, and they wanted somebody to lead the bands, the band at their church. I said, I think I can do that. <laughs> totally foolishly. But then it got real. Because in just a few months, the heat would be on. I would be, it would be public. I would be potentially humiliating myself in front of a few hundred people every Sunday, which I occasionally did anyway. But um, I had to, because of that decision, I didn't just decide to do it and then do it. I had to enter in. I had to adopt a different kind of overall life focused in that direction. And so for the next six months, I took lessons. I relearned music theory, particularly fretboard theory. And I practiced a few hours every single day. You know the old story about the rock and roll guitar player who played until his fingers bled? My fingers bled until calluses were developed. 
And what was at first very awkward and tense for me, especially at the beginning, standing in front of a group of people trying to play the guitar and, and having to look at my hands and think about everything that I was doing, eventually, after a few years, became and felt like the most natural thing in the world to me. And I will tell you that God disproportionately blessed that. In fact, there are times when I still feel like I would feel much more comfortable standing in front of you all with a guitar on. I don't know that I'd want to play it, but I could at least hide it. <laughs> so this might seem obvious to some of you spiritual journeymen. But it's not how a lot of us live. Just because the Holy Spirit points us in a particular direction does not mean that it won't take a whole lot of work and cooperation on our part, effort, to get there. And in my case, it took years of pretty intense and deliberate work. No one ever says, if you want to be a great athlete, go mogul a double black diamond or run the mile in under four minutes. Or if you want to be a great musician, just go and play the uh, viol uh, Beethoven violin concerto. <laughs> no, in the words of Dallas Willard, whom I read every land, we advise young athletes and artists to enter into a certain kind of overall life. One invoking, in, in involving deep associations with qualified people as well as rigorously scheduled time, diet, and activity for the mind and the body. Virtually everyone knows this is the path, and it's true of every single area of life. Nearly everyone knows the punchline to the classic joke, a question by a visitor to New York City that begins, Hey, buddy. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? It's not just a classic joke, though. That's exactly how reality works. So reality would dictate that if, if we were to follow Jesus, if we were to be disciples, not just consider ourselves Christian, to really walk in his steps, we have to do exactly the same thing. How do you follow Jesus? Well... How do you become a disciple? Practice. 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 The church knows this, and that's why since around the third century, it has practiced Lent, a season of prayer, study, fasting, and almsgiving, originally undertaken as a way to inculcate would-be disciples into the normal life of Jesus. Several decades ago now, there was a popular and hugely influential uh, Christian novel entitled In His Steps. Some of you remember it. The plot describes a series of tragic events that brings a pastor to, of a large and prosperous church to the realization of how unlike Christ's life his own had become. This pastor then leads his congregation in a vow of not do, to not do anything without first asking themselves the question, what would Jesus do? 
pastor took this vow to be the same thing as intending to follow Jesus, to walk precisely in his steps. And as it happens in the book, you might imagine significant, bordering on miraculous changes come about in the lives of the earnest Christians who take that vow. Most of us probably remember well the popular little WWJD bracelets worn as reminders. Now, fortunate for me, I still have them, and our bishop's name is Julian, so WWJD is very appropriate for me. I'm kidding, I don't have one, and I don't usually ask that question, what would Julian do? <laughs> but there's a huge flaw in this WWJD thinking. The book is entirely focused on trying to do what Jesus would supposedly do in response to specific choices in the moment. But WWJD is speculative. What would Jesus do is substantive. See, because there's never a hint that Jesus did anything but make perfect choices from moment to moment to moment. Even more interestingly, that there's absolutely no suggestion in the scriptures that the power to choose rightly when the heat is on is simply just by deciding that we're going to do that or 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 reading about it in a book. Because it's not how reality works and the scriptures are actually based on reality. <laughs> what would Jesus do is the wrong question. The question that matters if we want to follow in his steps. Again, it's what did Jesus do? The book never confront or conforms to the simple reality everyone recognizes in the rest of life. It doesn't ever state that to follow in his steps is to adopt the everyday way of life that he did. So the idea that's conveyed is a fatal one, and one that many of us have fallen prey to. That to follow Jesus simply means to try to behave like a Christian. To to it um and do what Jesus did in the moment under pressure or persecution or in the spotlight. There's no recognition that what he did in those cases was simply the natural outflow of the life he lived when he wasn't on the spot. So asking ourselves, what would Jesus do when we're suddenly faced with a situation simply isn't adequate to enable us to live as Jesus did? We've just talked about this in our, in our men's Bible study on, on, on Thursday morning. Modern brain science affirms the reality that the scriptures have always taught, that when the heat is on, by the time we ask, what would Jesus do, it's too late. Iris Murdoch, the 20th century Irish novelist and philosopher who just wrote some brilliant things, insightfully wrote, when the time for decision comes, the time for preparation is past. To try to act like Jesus in the moment is, is better than doing nothing. But that act alone is not sufficient to see us boldly and confidently through temptation and trial. And we easily find ourselves driven to frustration over its ultimate impotence. The power of Lent, then, is simply to seize our gaze 
<laughs> and align us again with reality. To learn from Jesus how to live the totality of our lives, how to invest our time and energies of mind and body as he did. To follow his regimens, the disciplines of life that, are in, that enable Jesus to learn true obedience and to grow in perfection. And I hope that got your attention because it sounds slightly heretical to say that. Jesus learned obedience. He grew in perfection. Wasn't he born objectively perfect? Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. He increased in wisdom and he increased in favor with God and men. That would mean there was some kind of movement, some kind of growth in his life. But let's add Hebrews 2.10, a passage that I mentioned last week. It was fitting that God, this is what it says, it was fitting that God for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here God's making Jesus perfect through suffering. So Jesus is in some sense moving toward perfection. But here's one other passage that I find the most provocative. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Son, though Jesus was, he learned obedience. Don't, don't miss that. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, don't worry for those of you who are getting nervous right now. I'm not going to stray from orthodoxy here. If you put all these together, though, you have Jesus increasing in wisdom, increasing in favor with God and man, being made perfect through suffering and learning obedience through what he suffered. What does all that mean if Jesus never sinned and therefore couldn't progress from one state of sinning to no sin? Or to be more specific, what does it mean for him to learn obedience or be made perfect? And why did Jesus have to pass through this? What was the goal? What was he moving toward if he never sinned? I want you to know that I, I'm not just arbitrarily assuming that Jesus never sinned. We've got a tradition, like we've got a, a tradition that he was sinless and we're just going to assume that he never sinned, sinned. No, we read this explicitly also in the book of Hebrews, which probably more than any other book in the New Testament insists on Jesus's sinless nature. There are numerous examples in the book. One is Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are. And then the rest of that? Yet without sin. So the very same writer who by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said Jesus had to learn obedience, said he never sinned. So what does that mean? He learned obedience means that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering and then through suffering into tested and proven obedience. 
if you think about it, if you're good enough, it's it's possible to learn a new task without failing. Not I'm not good enough at anything to do that. But maybe some people are. And and the new task Jesus had to learn every hour of his 40 days in the wilderness, and especially at the end of his life, was can I endure this suffering that I have never experienced before? This new obedience that I've never performed before in the history of the universe and can I learn to do this perfectly without failing or falling into unbelief and the simple answer from Hebrews is yes he can and did he learned obedience by what he suffered and never failed once in the process of learning and he would add strength to strength and build on that and obedience to obedience until he'd grown into the man who'd been fully and completely proven, who, who'd responded with perfect obedience so that he could be described as fully perfected. Not meaning that he passed from sinfulness to sinlessness, but that he passed from untested obedience to fully tested and tried obedience. It was a lot of work being Jesus. It didn't all just happen at the end. We tend to think of the word obedience negatively, though, as conforming to a kind of big, restrictive obligation. But etymologically speaking, the word obedience has its roots sunk most deeply in the idea simply of falling into line with reality, going with and not against the grain. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote so provocatively, when you go against the grain of reality, you know what you get? Splinters. That's right. But what Jesus was moving toward wasn't merely a completed, tested obedience, as critical as that is. He was also moving toward fulfilling a perfect salvation for us sinners. Remember Hebrews 2.10, which I, I just mentioned and I also mentioned last week. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, Jesus, by his obedience, was fulfilling everything the Father saw as fitting to becoming the Savior. I think this is the exact reason Jesus insisted on being baptized by John. Mark kind of bullet points the story of Jesus' baptism in today's gospel reading in Mark 1, 9 through 13, as he does with a lot of his stories. He like gives you the executive summary of these things, which is why Matthew is the shortest of the gospels. Matthew provides a much fuller description. In Matthew 3:14, Jesus comes into that situation and John says, Whoa! I, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to be baptized by me? In other words, he makes clear, similar to the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. He doesn't need this baptism. He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to confess any sins. So why, Jesus, are you here? Jesus gives one sentence in answer, and it's really important. He says in Matthew 3.15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
It's fitting. That's why. It's fitting. Jesus saw his life as the fulfillment of all righteousness. And the fact that participating in a baptism of repentance, even though he had no sin of which to repent, is part of what shows that the righteousness he would fulfill was the righteousness required not of himself, but of every sinful woman and man. This new people who were being gathered on the basis of repentance and faith would need to be justified. They, they would need to be counted righteous because they themselves were not righteous. They would need to be clothed, as it says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, in a righteousness that is not their own. Which I just want to parenthetically mention, this is why Steve and I wear these surpluses. Not because we're fancy, but because we want to, or we need to communicate to you and to ourselves that we are clothed in a righteousness that is absolutely not our own. As all of us are. And that righteousness includes the fulfillment of all righteousness in the life of Jesus, all the righteousness that would be required of men before God, Jesus performed. And so he joined fallen humanity for whom he was providing righteousness by sharing in their baptism and in their temptations. Where we've failed our test, someone must completely succeed and then offer themselves as the founder of our salvation so that if we trust him and are united to him, his <coughs> success in becoming a perfectly obedient person is counted as our obedience and success. This is where I find today's collect. You know, sometimes those just fly by in the service and we're not really thinking about them. But this is where I find today's collect so incredibly encouraging. Almighty God, whose blessed son was led by the spirit to be tempted by Satan. Lent lasts 40 days, not counting the six Sundays, because as celebrations of the, of the resurrection, Sundays are never fast days. They are always feast days. These 40 days recall Christ's fasting during his testing in the wilderness immediately following his baptism. And because we're in year B of the three-year Sunday lectionary cycle, today's gospel comes from Mark. Matthew is year A. Luke is year C. And again, as opposed to Matthew and Luke, who give us a lot more detail about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, Mark's account is astoundingly brief. The whole 40 days takes up two brief sentences in Mark 1, and that's it. Matthew and Mark give us the specific content of these three, these three temptations that Jesus faced. But, but still, even in Mark's brevity, we can see this stunning point. We have a God who knows by experience what it's like to be tempted and tried. Our God has been in the wilderness. Literally. This ought to be an immense encouragement to us because, man, are we tempted and tried. <laughs> and we often find ourselves, as it were, in the wilderness, which is where the collect goes next. Come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. Now, hold on. You might be thinking, I can't even 
tell you the last time I was tempted to command a stone to become bread or to cast myself off the pinnacle of the temple or, or to fall down and worship Satan in exchange for the kingdoms of this world. I'm much more tempted to do things like put my own desires above everyone else's, mistreat others, lie, lust, or give full and quick vent to my anger. But Jesus, so does Jesus really know what we're going through if he faced such unique temptations? Yeah, he does. His temptations had to do with his unique role as the Son of God. But in facing them, he can certainly relate to those lesser temptations that we face every day. Because our God became incarnate, became fully human for the sake of our redemption, we have a God who fully knows our experience. I nearly entitled this sermon, He Gets Us, but didn't want to stir up too much controversy and didn't want to talk about professional football for the second Sunday in a row. Despite the controversy, though, our Savior does get us in the profoundest way. Thanks be to God. But wait. Ron Popeil might say, there's more. Because the next phrase is calling. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one of you find them. Let each one of us find you mighty to say. So we don't just have a God who can both sympathize and empathize with us. Sympathy and empathy are great, but they're of small comfort when, when, if what follows isn't also true. Our God is mighty to save. God both knows what we're going through and he can do something about it. In fact, can. If you remember, that's why can is the third chapter of the four-chapter gospel. Ought is can will. Redemption, fall, redemption, or creation, fall, redemption, consummation. He is stared down exactly what we face, and he's able to do something about it. He's not content to let us remain captive to sin and death. No, he will not. Let sin and death have the final word over his good creation. Read Romans 8. He is indeed mighty to save, and I'm sorry if you now have a Hillsong earworm. <laughs> Here's some more good news. God can, today, through our <coughs> cooperating with him, give us ever more freedom from sin's power. Don't you get tired of falling to the same things? I do. While forgiveness from sin is, is simply an act of faith and so wonderful, simply an act of faith and confession on our part, as it says in our absolution, in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all who truly repent and with true faith turn to him again, Thanks be to God, but rendering sin ever more powerless over us, walking in the steps of Jesus will not just happen in the moment. 
no matter how much we wish for it. Gaining mastery over its power will require the same sincere and sustained practices of Jesus on our parts. Practices like of abstinence, silence, solitude, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy, and sacrifice. By the way, best book I've ever read on growing in Christ. Dallas Willard, Spirit of the Disciplines. Exceptional. I do not get any kind of commission. <laughs> but also disciplines of engagement were called to in Lent. Study, worship, celebration, service, fellowship, confession, and submission. Because that's what Jesus did. This is simply going with the grain of reality. That's why I cannot say this often enough. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. Lent, rather than being the heavy-handed burden and drudgery some make it out to be, is rather a gift, a loving invitation to enter into the kind of overall life that makes abundant life possible. Again, to do what Jesus did, to become proficient at prayer and and knowledge of the word and generosity and self-denial. Self-denial, which is the core trait of a disciple. So that when the heat is on, when we're in the moment, obedience comes as one of the most natural things in the world. Like playing guitar after several years of practice. That's the goal. That's the aim. Of Lent. And I hope you'll take this invitation seriously as you practice a holy Lent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.